brave enough to rescue a bear in distress? Or would you just stick with a sheep? This is Fiorella de Maria bringing you the early show all the way from a bright and breezy England. Should I say anything on the programme that strikes a chord, interests you or, heaven help me, causes you to choke on your full continental breakfast, please let me know. As always, our call-in telephone number is 844-527-8723. That's 844-527-8723. And the Crusader Stadium chat room is open for your commentary as well at crusadechannel.com forward slash chat. It's a beautiful Monday morning. I hope you all had a lovely restful weekend. I've started the day perfectly, um, besides having to take my car in to be serviced, which does not bode well. Let's not think about the bill that's no doubt coming my way. I found out this morning that Joseph Pierce, who I admire a very great deal, mentioned me in an article about the First World War, one of my books. We'll never tell them about the First World War. He's also written about the First World War, and he gave my little book a mention, which is kind of very exciting. Um, yes, I have posted in the chat room, I couldn't resist, my daughter's, my young, younger daughter's birthday cake. I mentioned that for her sweet 16th, Francesca wanted a cheesecake birthday cake. She's very fond of cheesecakes, so I made an incredibly naughty cheesecake with you know, marshmallow melted and mixed into it and all the rest. Um, Natalia wanted a chocolate cake with a, a molten centre, sort of chocolate lava cake with sweets on the top. So that was what she got. There is some cake under there, if you're just looking. It's not just a large amount of marshmallows and little chocolate balls. There was some cake there too. Um, oh, chicken lady, driving to Dearborn this morning to go to the dentist. Oh, on both accounts. Yes, I will be armed. <laughs> oh dear, I'm sorry you have to go to the dentist. Um, is there anybody listening who actually doesn't mind going to the dentist? I'm curious to know because I'm a complete wuss. I hate going to the dentist. I will do anything to avoid it. I have a wonderful dentist. He's an Iraqi Catholic. Excellent. Really, really excellent dentist. But I just don't like going to the dentist. It's one of those things I have loathed since I was about eight years old. And two of my children are currently being fitted up for braces. They're going to have to have teeth out and things. Um, and they're really not enjoying it very much either. So I'm curious to know, is there anyone who wakes up feeling just fine about it the morning of a dental appointment? Anyone at all? Or do you all just absolutely hate it the way I do? It is today, before we get on to our main story, it is Paint the World Orange Day. Do you mind if we don't? I cannot stand the colour orange. It is pretty much the only colour I really, really don't like. The only time I like it is in nature. I love the orange shades you get at sunrise and sunset um, and in some beautiful flowers, marigolds. Fine. I don't wear orange. I don't like orange furnishings. I just can't do it. Maybe I just have the wrong complexion for orange, but I don't like it at all. So the idea of painting the world orange just fills me with horror. Though I'm assuming it means something I don't get. That's usually the issue, isn't it? Um, it is also... Oh, Maggie's saying, I can't stand the dentist! Oh, no. And chicken lady... Worse, they made a crown wrong, needs to be cut out and remade. That is really awful. 
when you have to suffer extra because somebody's made a mistake that's just awful um the king due to sing as the recipient of twenty thousand dollars plus worth of crowns and fillings i've gotten over my anxiety and just offer it up yeah that's the other thing i've never liked you have to pay your torturer when you go to the dentist why oh why do i have to pay my dentist to do those things to me um fortunately we do have uh, nhs dentistry over here though uh, in, unlike medicine it is not completely free at all you have to pay but it is subsidized so there's a cap on how much they can charge you for certain things but there are other things that you can't more specialist and expensive things you can't get on the nhs like implants for example and i need a couple of implants and they cost about i think I think it's about £2,000, well, I don't know what it would be in dollars, £2,000 each implant. I don't know about you. I am not at all prepared to spend that sort of money. I'd rather have a gap or, dare I say it, dentures. Uh, the King Duda saying, oh, chicken lady, oh, sweetie, I feel so bad for you. The crowning is the worst procedure ever invented. It's an iron maiden for your mouth. Right. I've never had a crown. And, you know, just reading what you're saying, King Dude and, and Chicken Lady, I have no intention of ever having one. Um, fortunately, and I know this has caused some hilarity in the past, I have a very small mouth. Believe it or not, I have a very, very small mouth. And um, as a result, there are some dental procedures I can't have, like root canal, because they, they can't physically get the equipment into my mouth so there are some good things about this the downside to that is if something goes really wrong we just have to pull the tooth out uh, denise i'm saying i don't mind the dentist mine has the same name as my dear dad who passed in 2001 james dugan there we are we're praying yes king dude is saying we'll pray for you julie oh chicken lady you are called julie good morning julie right that's good to know uh, there we are. So you've given away an identity, King Dude. I'm not sure that's even allowed, is it? Yes, so we're not going to paint the world orange today. We are going to pray for all those who are going to the dentist today. Um, I actually think that going to the dentist is one of the few occasions these days where you have to be really brave. You know, we have to go through something physical which requires a certain amount of steeliness. You know, fortunately, you know, with analgesia, we, we don't have to worry quite so much about facing pain today but at the dentist you just don't know what you're getting do you you know when you open your mouth and they say oh dear got a nasty cavity there oh that's going to need patching up oh that's going to need a bridge that's going to need a crown you know and your heart sinks maggie saying my dentist as a child would whistle while he tortured me to this day i don't like when people whistle oh gosh that's really sad i know it's irrational but i still cringe every time i hear someone whistle okay king dude please never whistle um yes uh chicken lady say oh thank you and i've already told bk michigan i'm not going to feel good today so please deal yeah um it's funny that isn't it i had um well i actually had an excellent dentist as a child mrs wilde she was actually a really good dentist, but then she got replaced. She moved, and the dentist who re replaced her was a sadist, as far as I can work out. I mean, really, yanking out. And she actually told my parents in front of me, oh, I don't really like doing this sort of procedure. It's extremely painful, and there's a lot of blood. You know, I don't, it's not very pleasant for, for children. And for reasons known only to themselves, my parents went, oh, that's fine. Yes, that's fine. No, she'll be fine. Um, Yes, I, I was not fine that day or any day since when the dentist was involved. According to a friend of mine who's a dentist, 
fear of the dentist tends to start when you're about eight. It's usually about that age you start to need dental work if you're going to have to. Um, so that's when it, and dentists these days, they tend to be particularly careful. I mean, you, anyone treating a child should be careful, but they tend to be, to be particularly careful with children that sort of age because they know that how they treat the child is likely to have a, a fairly long term effect on them in terms of their relationship with the dentist. Yeah. Um, chicken lady saying I like my dentist very much that's why I drive three hours round trip well you know my mother comes all the way from the west country to where I live to go to the dentist here because she's found a dentist she really likes I think when that happens you don't mess about you stick with that dentist Philip is saying I have three gold crowns I told my kids it's their inheritance one for each if the gold wasn't part of my mouth I'd spend it well I used to well, I've, I've, as I pointed out, I never liked the dentist very much, but I was very suspicious as well because when I was, uh, well, I just had my first baby, um, the year after you give birth, you have um, maternity allowance here where you get to see the dentist for free. I think it's partly because you are most likely to have dental problems uh, just after pregnancy because of um Oh, the hormone changes and things. So they, they give you free dental care. So I thought, well, I, I may as well use this. And I went to see this dentist. She knew I was on maternity leave. And so she made it out that I needed this really costly, really complicated dental care that was not available on the NHS. And she panicked me so much about the state of my teeth and made it out that you know, this was really very, very necessary that I paid out. And I found out later it wasn't necessary at all. I thought, gosh, you charlatans, how could you do that? You're a young mum who's, you know, she's just had a baby and has no money and you winkled cash out of her that she could ill afford. How do you live with that? That's not being a dentist. That's being, you know, a con artist. Anyway, let's not, let me not complain anymore about dentists. I'm sure if there are any dentists out there, you do an important job. And I do know as well, um, certainly dentists I've seen that, they're very aware of the feelings people have about the dentist. I once was cringing whilst the dentist was describing what was about to happen. And she said, oh, I've no idea why nobody likes us. I was like, yeah, OK, you, you, you know, you know how it feels, don't you? I suppose dentists have to go to the dentist as well, thinking about it. Besides Paint the World Orange Day, it's also Saxophone Day. There we are. Saxophone day. Anyone play the saxophone? Anyone like the saxophone? This is Q... Intro music for the second segment is going to be something involving the saxophone. Philip is saying, the only bad experience I had with the dentist was the surgeon who removed my wisdom teeth, Dr. Reginald, Reginald Grippo. Not kidding. You can imagine his bedside manner. <laughs> yes. Ah, King Dude is saying Maggie plays the alto sax. That is a beautiful instrument. I think that is lovely. And... It's one of those instruments, it can be part of a chamber group, it can be solo. It's a, there are lots of ways you can you can play the saxophone. I've always thought the saxophone sounds a little bit insolent. There's just something, I suppose it's the bluesy sort of tone to it that just sounds like it's not taking life particularly seriously. Uh, but it can also sound angry, so no, it's an incredible instrument. Um, Chicken ladies, I like nachos. Well, it is also Na National Nachos Day. 
Nachos only appeared in my life quite close to adulthood. It wasn't really a snack you got very much over here. The first time I remember nachos was there was a company called Phileas Fogg after the hero of Around the World in 80 Days. And they brought out a whole range of snacks from around the world. And one of them was nachos. They were like big bags of crisps or chips, as you call them. and But they were, they were different from all over the place. And this was one of them was nachos. That was the first time I ever ate nachos. And now there is a burrito loco quite close to me. In fact, it's it's very close to the ice rink. And as a treat, particularly in panto season when the children are rehearsing the whole time, we go and get a box of loaded nachos or sometimes also loaded chips, which we mean loaded fries. But the nachos are really good. And, you know, you can con yourself that they're quite healthy. I don't think they are, but sort of, they taste quite light, don't they? So, yes, let's hear it for nachos. Um, Denise um, is saying, I remember a Dr. Grippo in Vermont. And the King Dude is warning me, dreadful sax music coming up, already have it cued, and I'm laughing. <laughs> you know, I could just go on strike. You do realise that, Mike, don't you? I mean, the, the dreadful music could come on and I could just sit here. <laughs> you know, it's sort of it, it, give, give, give everybody the silent treatment, though I don't imagine my show would last very long. Denny Sam can't wait. You see, you've started something now. It's 22 minutes past the hour. You are listening to The Early Show with your hostess, Fiorella de Maria, on a cold but sunny day here in England. If you've missed the show so far, never fear. You can get the whole of The Early Show as a podcast. Same day from crusademax.com. We have been talking about, well... How do we feel about the dentist? Chicken Lady is going to the dentist to get a crown remade that was put on properly. This is a bad thing. Does anyone not have a major problem with the dentist? Do let me know. And if you do have a problem with the dentist, where did it start? Was it a childhood experience? It usually is. It is paint the world orange day, but I'd really rather you didn't. If it's all the same to you, I would really rather not see any more orange than is strictly necessary. And it is saxophone day. And I think the saxophone is a great instrument, though I know something dreadful is going to happen when the second segment comes up. So let me just keep talking and not think about what is about to happen. It is also National Nachos Day. And I was just saying that nachos came to Britain a little bit later, not, not in my childhood. I was reaching adulthood the first time I came across them, but I do like them very much. And in fact, Mexican food is pretty popular now in Britain. In terms of non-Indigenous food, I'm trying to find the right terminology, curry is still the most popular after British food. Um, Indian food, though I, I have it on good authority, it's actually Bangladeshi food, is the most popular. But Chinese is also popular, Chinese, Chinese takeaway, the, you know, prawn crackers and sweet and sour chicken, that sort of thing. But in recent years, a lot of other foods have also become from all around the world to become popular um, kebabs, sort of North African cuisine, Mexican um, burritos and all the rest suddenly become a, a go-to snack. And where, what else has become popular? Oh, sushi, Japanese food. 
Japanese and Korean food have become really popular too. I think that's probably been the biggest change. You know, sushi bars turning up in every town, which did not exist at all in the 80s and 90s. Um, And bubble tea parlors you know places and i love really love bubble tea so that's probably my favorite um maggie saying i love me some sushi do you know i'm not ever so fond of sushi um i don't like raw fish but if it's the right kind of sushi little little vegetable sushi i do quite enjoy um and you can now get them it's not just the sushi bars that have um have appeared everywhere in supermarkets sometimes you have these meal deals you know where you can get a sandwich and a packet of crisps and a chocolate bar or whatever a drink for a certain fixed price um, a lot of supermarkets now which shows it's really mainstream will offer a tray of sushi as an alternative to sandwiches or a baguette or something like that so it's become a lot more mainstream so yes sushi's not my favorite favorite thing but the right kind of sushi yeah definitely but i do love bubble tea and i do like noodles and ramen or ramen i don't know quite how you say it it's a is a particular favorite now um here in our family please forgive any strange noises by the way you hear in the background i changed my phone over the weekend my poor poor phone like a sound like that for example i can't work out how to switch it on to silent just at the moment my poor phone got slower and slower and slower and died but I have a lovely, shiny, new, refurbished phone. Half the price of a new one. And it's really good. Looks as if it came straight from the factory. But I'm still getting used to it. And I can't work out how to switch off all the bells and whistles. People were giving me some very, very funny looks at the side of the ice rink this morning. Because every time I got a text message, there was a sound like someone hiccuping. And it wasn't me. It was the phone. So anyway... Right. I asked at the beginning of the show, I asked at the beginning of the show, are you brave enough to rescue a bear in distress? Well, the reason I'm asking is there have been three very interesting stories circulating around Britain. That sort of sound. Yeah. Um, And they all involve rescue. Different kinds of rescue. CRM 114 is saying, I think the Benny Hill show. Um is appropriate for the sax music and it's British. Oh, I tell you what, it's it's that sort of, that's exactly what I meant about it sounds insolent. It's that sort of cheeky sound um, that just, that really cracks me up. Um, You know, you just, you just feel as if it's having a laugh somehow. Right. I'm attempting to switch this thing off. Right. I think I have worked it out. Okay, I found a do not disturb button. There we go. Right, rescue. Maggie, this is what I mean. If you put a picture of the of um, sushi, it's, it's the raw, that looks to me as if it's got raw fish in it. I can't get used to raw fish. Anything else. I know that saying you don't like raw fish, but sushi is okay is a bit of a contradiction because a lot of it involves raw fish. I just, I don't know, I, just, I, I, can't, I can't really quite deal with it. My second favourite sushi roll called the Burning Dragon. Amazing. All right, I'll take a word for it. Okay. I'm sure I'm sure it is amazing. I just um, don't try before you deny, but I have tried the raw fish. I'm sorry, it just doesn't quite work. Um but anyway, yes, rescues. Aha, and this is number one. Okay, is that also got raw fish in it? Um Dr. Torres saying 
sashimi can kill ever seen the show monsters inside me all it takes for some parasite to be in the raw fish that then gets into your brain and nearly kills you um according to maggie this is ahi tuna wrapped in a cucumber i can do cooked sushi not um sashimi um dr shore is saying i think that's it i'm just generally speaking i have an aversion to raw fish and meat it just always worries me just a little bit cooked is fine um, i'm guessing that in japan if they do raw fish a lot they probably source it more carefully perhaps over here um maggie saying yes but i die with a full belly and i'd be relatively happy lol yes okay you say that maggie can you imagine going up to the pearly gates and having to explain that to saint peter so how did you get here my daughter um i ate raw fish i couldn't resist some sushi yes um i don't know um, I'm probably I'm probably being really ignorant. I'm sure it's perfectly safe. I just have a natural nervousness. It took me a while to be even capable of eating uh, medium rare steak. I ate it by accident. I went to a restaurant where they happened to serve it, practically twitching. And do you know I really liked it? It was really really delicious. But yes, three rescue stories: a sheep, a bear, and a man. Let's start, shall we, with the man who has been rescued. I've been thinking about this particular story because recently I reviewed Robinson Crusoe and I think we have a fascination with people who end up having to deal with some major adversity all alone. We're frightened to death of being alone. We're not meant to be alone. You know, we're social animals. We like community. We like, you know, talking to people mostly. And particularly in adversity, it's a good thing if you have someone you can bounce ideas off and, you know, plan, you know, plan a course of action. So what happens when there is nobody there? And I think that's why stories like Robinson Crusoe are enduringly fascinating, and why there have been so many spin-offs and um, um, very, very similar ideas like Castaway, even Martian, you know, the bloke on Mars. Uh, Life of Pi was probably Robinson Crusoe for the end of the 20th century. The Indian man, Ravi, no, not Ravi, that's his friend, Pai, Pisin Molitor Patel, who finds himself adrift in the Pacific in a lifeboat. Well, this man had a brush with the Robinson Crusoe experience. Oh, Maggie, there we go. I knew this was going to run and run. This is more sushi, lots more sushi. This is what my son eats. That's too much for me, but he loves it. Dr. Torres, St. Peter will just say, oh, bless your heart. We all know what that means. Okay, I suppose there are worse ways to find yourself before St. Peter than eating dodgy sushi. Okay, this man, he went sailing off the coast of Washington and he was missing for two weeks. He was completely off the radar. No one knew what had happened to him. And eventually they called off the search. They just had to accept that a man like that, wandering, so sort of floating around alone, he, that he must have drowned. He was in a 43-foot boat. However, two days after the rescue was called off, the man was rescued. He was found. And... 
it was spotted by a group who were on a fishing trip 70 miles from Cape Flattery. What is very upsetting in this case is the fact there were two people who originally set sail. One of them is still missing. They don't know what happened to the other one. And the one who did survive, survived by eating bits of salmon while he was alone at sea. And, of course, he looked very emotional when he was rescued. They gave him lots of water. They gave him something to eat. But it was that human contact, the hug, being with somebody else. And I just thought, you know, for the people who pulled him aboard their own vessel, he will never forget that. He will never forget their faces. He will never forget the sound of their voices. He must have despaired he would ever be found. And it was pointed out that even though lifeboats are painted in bright colours so they can be seen, it's not that easy to see anything out at sea. You know, your line of vision, I think you can only see at the most 10 miles if it's completely clear. So if you're floating around in the, in the sea, in the middle of the sea, the chances are you will be missed. But mercifully, thank God, they didn't. They saw him and they were able to rescue him. Now, we've got to go to a we've got to go to a, an ad break now. And I'm bracing myself for the intro of the second segment. You're listening to the Eng the, <laughs> the English show, the early show all the way from England. Our call in telephone number is eight four four five two seven eight seven two three. That's eight four four five two seven eight seven two three. And the chat room is open for your commentary and pictures of sushi at crusadechannel.com forward slash chat do talk to me do join this conversation the early show will continue in a few moments here on the crusade channel live talk radio the way it should be and insomniacs and those of you catching the show's rebroadcast at midday. For those of you just joining us, you're listening to The Early Show. Yes, this is The Early Show with your hostess from across the pond, Fiorella de Maria. Our call in telephone number is 844-527-8723. That's 844-527-8723. And the Crusader Stadium chat room is open for your commentary as well at crusadechannel.com forward slash chat. Do talk to me. Do join the conversation as you enjoy a hearty breakfast with that racket in the background. Was that Barry? That wasn't Barry Manilow, was it? It was the beginning bit with Barry Manilow. What was that thing? That sounds so 80s, whatever it was I've just been listening to. Um, anyway, yes, I feel, oh God, I've got a headache. I mean, really, I mean, what's, this, what's the point of all that noise? Anyway, I'm sounding like an old woman. Okay, let me just let it go. It was fine. There, it wasn't dreadful. It was fine. I'm unfazed by everything that the king dude throws at me. 
If you have missed the show so far, you may have gathered it is National Saxophone Day. Yes, it is also National Paint the World Orange Day. I'd really love it if you didn't. And Nachos Day. How about Orange Nachos whilst listening to the saxophone day? It's also a why do we hate the dentist so much day because uh, someone is uh, the chat room was saying that uh, chicken lady was saying she's got to go to the dentist today. And I can't think of anyone who actually enjoys going to the dentist. Um, A few people have said they don't mind too much, but I think that's about as far as it goes. Careless whisper coming up. This is the king dude. That is that what that thing? What Baker Street bleeding gums Murphy from the Simpsons? What is that? Oh, that was 1978's Baker Street, a song by Scotsman Jerry Rafferty. Okay, right, whatever. You, you know, you could be speaking Swahili. I've no idea what you're talking about. Oh no, someone else guessed it was Jerry Rafferty. All right, so uh, this is obviously a name I should know, but don't. Tchaikovsky, Elgar, Beethoven. I know a few musicians. Anyway, I've been talking about rescue. Rescues. Some very interesting rescue stories have come up in the last few days. Well, Paul C. likes that song, so there you go, King Dude. A man has been rescued after two weeks that the call the, the Coast Guard had called off the search. It was felt that he it was you know, there, there was no chance really realistically of finding him. But just two days after the search was called off, he was rescued. The, the man in, involved has not been named. He was taken to shore by the Canadian Coast Guard. He's apparently in a stable condition. It was very emotional when he was pulled aboard. He had lived off salmon for the days he'd managed to catch a salmon. And that's what he'd been living on all those days at sea. Oh, Dr. Torres, what's this? Um, Bleeding Gums Murphy, ha ha. I remember when he did the national anthem that starred the gospel singer Daryl Coley. The anthem just went on and on and on. Making fun of my people for knowing how to stretch out a simple song. Okay, that probably was that probably was very funny. Okay, um, but when a person is rescued, you know, we, we, we have a natural desire to rescue, to, to save not just people, but also animals. There's something about that, that instinct to reach out to anyone or anything that is in a vulnerable situation. And you know, no surprises that the people who found this man drifting at sea were really delighted that they were able to save him. But there have been two other cases of, in this case, animals being rescued, which I found interesting because of the amount of effort it took to save them. In one case, a bear was rescued. Now, I would have thought, you know, bears are quite scary, so I'm not sure I would be brave enough myself. But in this case, it was not a, you know, I have to say it wasn't a dangerous bear. It was a bear at a zoo. This was um, a zoo in Sweden. And it was one of those awkward situations where they just couldn't look after him anymore. And they just, the view was just euthanize him, okay? Just euthanize him, just uh, put him out of his misery and, you know, he won't have to suffer. 
But there was a feeling that, no, we shouldn't do that. You know, why, why kill a, a beautiful animal like that if you don't have to? And so he was brought all the way to England, where he's, I gather, doing pretty well. I found it particularly funny that he came on the Eurostar. I somehow had visions of him sitting in first class, drinking a citron pressé and eating a croque madame. Um, though I, I imagine he was probably um, probably in a cage or something. But they've gone to all this effort. They've built him a lovely enclosure. And there he is. Um, oh, dear. Okay. There's... Lots being said in the chat room about music. This is your fault, King Dude. Um, Dr. Teresa St. Careless Whisper is the late George Michael. CRM114, George Michael. Now that is dreadful with respect to the dead. Dr. Torres, no, never go to a black funeral. Just show up at the graveside. Those people don't know how to say goodbye. The corpse starts to stink by the time they finish the funeral. I'm dead. Put me in a box in a hole and get on with your day. Oh, now, come on. You know, you've got to give people a good long send off, Dr. Torres. Um, if, you, if you think funerals take a long time in some parts of the world, try weddings. My friend was at a Sikh wedding the other day and she said it was absolutely beautiful, really, really beautiful wedding, beautiful couple. But gosh, the party went on for days. She had a fabulous time, but gosh, it was a big party. Um, CRM114. Need some David Sanborn or Michael Brecker saxophone music. I don't know who they are. I feel so ignorant. I'm so glad this isn't a music channel. Um, I'll, I'll do. A f let, let me turn the early show into a food program any day, but please don't make it a contemporary music program. All right, because I, I will have to go back to school or something just to learn who all these weirdos are. Third rescue. So we had. Okay. A man, a fisherman, rescued off the coast of Canada. We had a bear rescued from euthanasia and brought to a London zoo. And then a sheep that somehow or other managed to get itself stuck at the bottom of a cliff. This sheep, who has been described as Britain's loneliest sheep managed to find itself stuck on a remote shingle beach in the Scottish Highlands. Now, the Scottish Highlands is a pretty lonely part of Britain anyway. How on earth this sheep ended up where she did is anybody's guess. But Fiona, as she's being called, was there for two years awaiting rescue all on her own. She managed to find a little cave to shelter in from the bad weather and uh, Believe me, in the Scottish Highlands, there's a lot of bad weather to shelter from. And there was enough grass uh, and fresh water that she was able to survive. But there she was, and people would sail past her in their kayaks, and there she would be, bleating away, trying to get their attention. And the only thing that was wrong with her, eventually they managed to haul her up a steep slope. But of course, because she hadn't been shorn for two years, she was really heavy. It was quite difficult getting her up. But when they did finally rescue her, they found she was perfectly well, very healthy, but she did have a lot of fleece. She was massive. So she has now been shorn and is probably feeling pretty relaxed and a bit 
a bit lighter, shall we say, after having to carry all that around. Now, some people might say, well, really, is it worth all the hassle and money to rescue a sheep at the bottom of a cliff who was coping perfectly well? But somehow there was just this feeling you shouldn't leave this poor sheep all alone. There's just this feeling, you know, look after the poor thing. And there's um, a little farm she's going to go to and she'll be absolutely fine. But you do just wonder sometimes how they get there and at what point you say this is probably not worth the trouble. I'm glad they rescued her. It was a lovely heartwarming story. But are there situations where it's just impossible? Um, Dr. Torres, um, just saw Kenny G. Maybe she knows him. I don't have time for meetings that just go on and on and on. I'll execute an Irish goodbye. It just can't take all the jawboning and human interaction. These things must be kept to a minimum by, for a sane mind. Yes, I tell you what, okay, the only way, I very rarely say I agree with you, Dr. Torres. Okay, so please savour this moment. It will not happen again for a while. Okay, right. <laughs> I do find the prolonged goodbyes at parties quite tricky. I don't do the Irish goodbye things. I can't quite bring myself to just walk away. But I do find the having to build in an extra half an hour to leave quite stressful. I don't know whether there's a very, very mild sort of social anxiety there somewhere. But I do find that the way as soon as you say, right, I really should be going. And like other British people always have to start by saying, right, right, I really should be going, you you know there will have to be at least two or three lengthy conversations had between, right, I really should be going and the door. That is the only thing I do find quite stressful. Um, chicken lady, in response to rescue, it's called being humane. Exactly. And I think that's what it is. I love the fact that we do seem to have this very strong sense that we do have an obligation to other people, but also to to creation, to the world around us. And there's something about, you know, that poor sheep standing there bleating away to passing, you know, sailors that just really upset people. They wanted to go and help her. So they did. Um, Philip, with the price of meat these days, I'd say it's worthwhile to rescue the sheep. I knew somebody was going to say that, but I thought it was going to be Dr. Torres. So well done, Philip. Yes, there we go. Um, so rescue, generally speaking, it's a good thing. We should reach out to people. OK, it is 52 minutes past the hour. You are listening to The Early Show with your hostess from across the pond, Fiorella De Maria. If you have missed the show so far, never fear. You can get the whole of The Early Show same day from as a podcast from crusadechannel.com. No, crusademax.com. Sorry, had a moment of distraction thinking of a sheep. We have been talking about, if you have missed the first segment, in no particular order, National Paint the World Orange Day. If it means something other than actually going out with a paintbrush and painting the world orange, could somebody please put me out of my misery? It is also National Nachos Day. Nachos are great. Great idea, Nachos. And National Saxophone Day, which excludes, excuses, sorry, I'm tired, which excuses the dreadful choice of music for the beginning of the second segment. The King Dude does not need any excuses to wind me up with his choice of music. But there we are. It being National Saxophone Day, this is apparently okay. 
Right. Um, ah, okay. Maggie is saying paint the world orange is referring to the leaves changing colours here in the States. They turn a yellow, orange and red colour. They do that in Britain too. They do that in Britain too. And it is so beautiful. I love autumn for that change. It's so beautiful. It's like nature. We were going past a tree just yesterday. And one of my daughters said it could have been painted. It hardly almost seems real. It's so beautiful. Okay, in that case, paint the world orange is a lovely idea. Yes, a lot of our trees do that. And it's one of those just, one of those lovely details of autumn, just the changing, slowly changing colours before all the trees fall, or lose all their leaves or the leaves fall off the trees. So, okay, thank you very much. That makes me, um, that makes me feel slightly less weird. Um, here we are. Yes, it's King Dude. Philip beat Dr. Torres to it. That's it. It was going to happen, wasn't it? Um, Dr. Torres is saying, I don't care for sheep for food. Lamb, baby, sheep, wool. But mutton is... Bur well, the thing is, I don't remember. As a child, people ate mutton a lot more than lamb here. I really remember. I didn't like it particularly. I, I found it quite tough. Uh, but mutton was the go-to food, whereas now... I haven't seen mutton for sale for years. Everyone eats lamb because it is just much nicer. Probably mutton was less expensive, uh, which is why it was a lot more common, but almost disappeared. I've, I can't think of a last time I've seen it on a menu or I've seen it for sale in the supermarket. Um, what's this? Is Chicken lady saying God sees all suffering. Absolutely. And I think it was C.S. Lewis who he, he used to talk a lot about the relationship between humans and animals, that we we have to care for animals because it says something for us. If a, if a human being is cruel to an animal, it says a great deal about that person. Why would a person do that? You know, it's in our humanity to care for any living thing that is more vulnerable than us. So, no, I'm sure you're right. Um, and it doesn't have to turn into, oh, can you imagine the animal rights activists if they'd gone to all the trouble to rescue that sheep and then had a barbecue? Oh, dear. Yes. Um, let's not even think about it. Fortunately, that did not happen. Anyway, Fiona the sheep is perfectly well. That's all anyone needs to know. Oh, uh, chicken lady is saying, um, our leaves are brown and on the ground. Yes, there's something about that. Do you also get that after all the lovely leaves have changed colour and fallen off the trees, then there's the piles of leaves on the pavements, you know, walking through the fallen leaves. There's just something nice about that. Yes, this is a good time of year. A woman has caused considerable consternation by admitting that she cannot be bothered to potty train her youngest child. This is actually a story. I made it into the newspapers. Oh, wow. Philip has just shown a, shared an article. This giant smiley face of trees greets drivers um, every fall. Look, uh, some the, the trees have been, well, must have been planted in such a way that... Only some of them are trees where the leaves turn orange. So you have a great big smiley face in the middle of the forest. That is just lovely. Um, 18, so what's the south of Oregon? Okay. 
Um, trees on Hampton Lumberland, the giant smiley face each fall. In 2011, they created the design by planting a mix of Douglas fir and larch. During a reforestation of the area, larch trees are conifers with needles that yellow and drop in autumn, and they make up the body of the face. Douglas fir makes up the eyes and mouth. The smiley face should return each fall for the next 30 to 50 years until the trees are ready to be harvested for lumber that is great that's beautiful there is somewhere in ireland where they do that with the celtic cross it's absolutely stunning every autumn this celtic cross just appears in the middle of the forest and just the thought that somebody thought to do that someone thought to plant the, the trees in such a way as to create that beautiful artwork nature's artwork i think that's just lovely dr Torres saying baby sheep better than adult sheep but adult cows are better than baby cows don't like veal i love veal no veal is delicious the only problem is i feel a bit uncomfortable about eating veal it's very difficult to get hold of in britain because of um of animal welfare legislation i used to eat it in malta but it's the way it's uh, prepared is very cruel the the calves that are reared for veal are kept in the dark um they they're sort of you know a bit like with battery hens they're kept in very cramped conditions in almost total darkness it does something to the meat and I remember seeing a documentary where they showed how they do this. And I just thought, I just don't think that's acceptable. You know, I'm not a vegetarian. Um, you know, I do eat meat, but I do feel that it should be, that animals should be reared in, in a humane way and in an ethical way. I just, I didn't feel that was acceptable. So I don't eat it anymore, even though I do think it, it tastes absolutely delicious. Um, I wouldn't eat foie gras either, but frankly, foie gras isn't often on my shopping list uh, just because of the cost. But yes, they do nasty things to geese to make that happen. So, you know, there, there are, I have some the limits. There are certain animals I whose meat I will not eat for that sort of reason anyway yes um a woman has caused consternation because she admitted she couldn't be bothered to potty train her youngest child she's a mother of four and she said uh you know she was busy she, you know, she wanted to go back to work as quickly as possible. It was really important to her that she get herself to work. Um, didn't want to have to faff about, you know, doing boring things like raising her children. And she said her au pair was useless and just let the, you know, child piddle across the garden. Um, and the, the daycare wasn't any good either at it. So, um, you know, it was all a bit tiresome for her so she sent the child to school age five in nappies or diapers and said that the school can deal with it understandably this has caused a fair amount of consternation and i just can't understand why a person would do this just to expect it to be somebody else's problem is that who do you think you are oh i can't be bothered to potty train my child really well i can't be bothered to wean my child i can't be bothered i mean you have a child. You have obligations. Ah, Foghorn, good morning. Um, good morning, Crusaders. My laptop died last week. I'm finally getting back in. Missed everyone. Uh, it's lovely to have you back in the chat room. I do find that sometimes you know, people disappear from the chat room. I think, oh, whatever happened to this person or that person? It's good to have you back. And good morning, Erin Akima. 
But the reason this woman is able to do this is to give some background. It used to be the case that most nurseries, that is uh, preschools from three years old upwards, and primary schools, which start uh, when the child is aged between four and five, would not allow a child to enter and until they were properly toilet trained. Uh, it was just taken as a, a requisite that they should be out of nappies, out of diapers by the time they were three or four. However, this had to change due to quite understandable anti-discrimination laws because some children with special needs simply cannot be toilet trained that early. You know, where there's, there are actually learning difficulties. And um, one of the problems is not being able to reach those milestones. So to avoid discrimination, it then became illegal for schools and nurseries to say that they would not accept a child who wasn't toilet trained. But there are then parents who have exploited this to not bother to prepare their child for growing up. And it's a nightmare for schools when this happens because because of safeguarding there have to be two teachers present when a, a, a child's nappy is changed and all of this and also it's very embarrassing for a child if they're not properly toilet trained and they're having accidents and things like that so i just think this is this is really difficult um denise Semmer saying i've been struggling to potty train my doodlebug for a while now progress is slow but sometimes he can do it i certainly found that with an autistic child it was an uphill battle he was fine by the time he went to primary school but there were times i thought it was never ever going to happen every milestone every developed developmental milestone was really really difficult um, and that's pretty much universally the case when you are dealing with a child with special needs but um, what i do find unacceptable is a parent sending their child to school in nappies because they couldn't be bothered. Erin um, Akima saying, in today's world, parents have been conditioned to believe that schools will take care of their kids for them. Here in the States, there are more and more responsibilities added to public schools. So parents, even those of means, pawn them off onto the schools. You see, I think you're absolutely right. I think this is part of a bigger trend. Is there any kind of loss of personal responsibility? There's this sense that someone else should do everything. Someone else should raise your children. Someone else should teach your children manners. Someone else should feed your children, clothe your children, look after your children. And it's just, it is just very, very wrong. Um, and this woman has rightly been slammed for her comments. But I think what shocked people the most wasn't so much just that she couldn't be bothered to toilet train her child, but that she had no embarrassment about admitting it. Most, most of the time, you know, we, we've all got our lazinesses. You know, there are all certain things we don't like to do, but probably wouldn't admit to it. Certainly wouldn't go to the press and expect everybody to be on our side. And this comes at a time when there are increasing problems when it comes to accessing childcare, particularly preschool childcare. It's been found that... Um, there are fewer and fewer places available. A lot of childminders are leaving, are changing jobs, saying that they're finding it too stressful, they're finding it too bureaucratic. There are lots of reasons being given why people are leaving 
childcare. The number of childcare places in England fell by 2% this last year. So there were 9,800 fewer childminders available than the previous year. So this is really quite a problem. And it comes at a time where the government is promising parents more and more free childcare, but cannot provide it. There's no point in saying, oh, your child has a right to 15 hours or 30 hours of childcare a week if all the local nurseries are massively oversubscribed. And I've seen this from the perspective of a childminder. There was a wonderful childminder lived on in my neighbourhood and she looked after my older two children um, for a short time between my maternity leaves and they still are very close to her they see her as an auntie figure um and you know she's remained close to the family she's come to baptisms and first holy communion she was an incredibly dedicated childminder had two grown-up children of her own and i completely trusted my children with her but she was subject to Ofsted inspections, the way schools are. Anyone who cares for children will be inspected. She got marked down. She got given an inadequate rating because she was not exposing my children to enough ethnic minorities, to enough ethnic diversity. And I tried to make the point that, for a start, you can't engineer these situations. You know, what she's supposed to do, put out an advert and saying, could anyone um, who is mixed race please turn up at my doorstep so that the children in my care can be exposed to children who look slightly different to them? But also, the inspector was so ignorant because... My children are mixed race. My children are Anglo-Maltese. So every single person they met, besides their own siblings, were of a different ethnicity to them. Every single person. She managed to get through this bad inspection. Then a few years later, you usually get inspected about every five years. The inspector picked holes in so much of her care, not suggesting that the children weren't safe or anything like that, but marking her down because, oh, um, a light bulb had gone. When she went to switch on the light, one of the lights in a room that wasn't even being used wasn't working, so she got marked down. It was things like this. And in the end, you know, afterwards, she cried and she just said, I can't do this anymore. I, I love childminding. I, I love so much looking after children. It's my life. But I, I simply can't deal with the humiliation of being marked down over things I mostly can't help. Um, and, it, and that was another childminder who left the profession, a good childminder who could be absolutely trusted. You know, I'm pretty picky with who looks after my children, like most parents, particularly with Latin mamas. You know, we tend to be a little bit protective. I absolutely trusted her and my children loved her. You can tell a lot about a childminder just by how your child feels about being left in their company. Little children will make it very, very clear if they don't trust their childminder. Um, and 
there she was. She, she just went. And not because she wasn't up to the job, but because she was failing to jump through the right hoops. Louise was saying the present obsession with race is madness. Well, this is what bothers me so much, because the fact is, when I was very, very young, and you know, I was I was very, very little when we arrived in England, and it was still a problem. Um, I I mean, maybe this will shock people. I don't know. When I first went to a mother and toddler group, a mother and preschoolers group, I remember children refusing to talk to me because they said I had a silly name and I looked different to them. And I just sat on my own because nobody would come near me because in that particular part of England at the time, there was just nobody who was not Caucasian. It just, it just didn't happen. Now, in that sort of situation, you don't need to have all sorts of guidance. The parents needed to say, come on now, play with that girl, please. No, she's just like you. Let me teach you how to say her name. Or maybe you could give each other nicknames, you know, or, or whatever. Um, I remember in my first year at primary school not being allowed to join in because I was, I quote, wearing makeup because the other children didn't realise that my very bright lips and cheeks and my long eyelashes were natural. They thought that I was I was painting my face to look like that. So it can be a problem. I'm not denying it is an, a problem in some way or other. However, first of all, these days, it's just different. You know, we're at so, so much more, particularly, you know, if you live near London, if you live in the southeast of England, you know, the chances are it's going to be very multicultural. I mean, there's my parish, there are there are Carolans, there are Kenyans, there are Colombians. I mean, you know, we we're represented. I can't remember how many different languages were spoken at my children's Catholic primary school, but particularly in Catholic circles, we do tend to be very multicultural. But I, I, I don't even really feel it's much of a problem for children anymore. But if it is, it's like teaching your children manners. You just deal with it. It doesn't have to become a huge issue. Um, Denise M saying agreed Louise being white is a bad thing shows in commercials are not proportional to the population um, well, uh, just yes I mean it's, it's, and, and include homosexuals as normal I mean I think um, I think Denise the, the uh, sort of it ties in with what Louise was saying um, I feel and there's a whole show that needs to be done on this um, and I, I should probably try and get a guest or something. Maybe I can get Joe to come in um, and chat about this because he's um, being of the Windrush generation. He's he's very um, interesting on the whole topic of race. More and more, I'm beginning to feel that the whole issue of inclusivity and the obsession with race and sexuality particularly is a distraction from the real dividing lines and the real dividing line in Britain as in anywhere else in the world is money, not colour. It's all to do with how much money you have. That's where people really do get excluded. I notice this with, um, with elite sport. There is a huge difference in terms of your chance of being successful. We like to think it's just raw talent. It's not just raw talent. It's the difference between the girl whose mummy and daddy can pay for her to go to specialist camps, to specialist academies, who can buy her the finest equipment, who can buy her as much coaching time as she needs or wants. 
you know, the mummy and daddy can afford to live in a big house close to the facilities they need, who can pay out thousands to send her to international competitions, compared with the kid in the council house who's, you know, whose mum, whose mum's on benefits and who cannot afford to get her the finest equipment, the, the place at the specialist academy. Those are the real dividing lines. Those are always the dividing lines. They have always been the dividing lines. Yes, something like ice skating. One of my daughter's comments is that it is still very white, you know, partly because I think skating, like all winter sports, it was always a very northern thing. It's only more recently that it's become much more popular right around the world. Um, and she's quite keen to, you know, to change that a little bit, you know, to add a little bit of colour. But that's not the issue. It is money. You know, and where I live, I live in an area where the majority of people are white working class. I'm sorry, but they are not privileged. They're, they're not privileged. You know, there, there are men in my neighbourhood in their 90s who have slaved away all their lives and nobody cares about them at all. They have never been any trouble. They have never broken any law. They have been good citizens. They have worked hard. They've raised happy families in the teeth of every possible obstacle. And they are still accused of being a privileged class. They're not. It's nonsense. Um, CRTO, well, good morning, fellow crusaders. What have I missed? Gosh, what haven't you missed? You know, you're going to have to, I'm sorry, you're going to just have to sign in a bit earlier. We, we've, how did we go from paint the world orange day to talking, having this really, um, having this really serious conversation about inclusivity? Mike, are you there? Mike, don't you dare play the saxophone down the microphone. I know you're going to do this to me. Now, I have no other music queued up. Okay, promise. Oh, I can find some. <laughs> don't you talk don't me. To. If you taunt no. me. No, 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 no. Don't, don't feel you have to. <laughs> uh, how are you, Mike? That song is a, is a 1970s uh, song. It's about... It's called Baker Street. It's about uh, it's about Baker Street in London. Yeah, and I, I assumed it was Sherlock Holmes esque. Uh, no, it, you would. I think if you read the lyrics, you probably would. Uh, Winding your way down on Baker Street, lighting your head and dead on your feet. Another crazy day, dreaming the night away. He he says this city days makes you feel so cold. It's, it's got so many people, but it's got no soul. London, he's talking about. Oh, right. Okay. So, um, there's an interesting story about that song. They Rafferty recorded that song, sent, sent it to the record company, and they're like, that song's not good. <laughs> and he goes, no, it's really good. And he goes, it needs something. And they just happened to have the saxophone guy, who you heard, in the mm -hmm. studio that day, and he listened to it, and he goes, I can uh, I can play a, uh, a riff for that. And so they went in, and they the saxophone guy uh, came in, they worked on it for I don't remember how long, but they worked on uh, that saxophone part that you heard. They recorded it. That song went to number one. Wow. Yes. Yes. And well, Rafferty is some... one of those old kind of Scotsman, rebel kind of Scotsman guys. Not a, not not the you know politically correct, uh, effeminate loser today. Um, he was a Van Morrison type. 
You don't you don't know who Van Morrison is. So I lost you for just a second and no, I don't know who. You don't know who Van Mor Ivan Morrison you don't know who Van Morrison is? Okay, shall I resign now? Brown eyed girl? <laughs> you never heard brown eyed girl? Uh, you no. my brown eyed girl. Do you remember when? You've never heard Brown Eyed? Okay. That rock that you've been living under in Malta is uh, is is the size of Gibraltar. Um, I don't know how you could it? be alive and not have heard that song. <laughs> um, you just passed well, in front of a radio one day and someone would have been playing it. Well, um, as you say, I've been, I'm, I'm living in a cave, okay? Look, that's all here, I can here, say. Here, here, this, this. Okay. Yes, I recognize it. Hey, where did we go? Days when the rain... So, uh... No, I don't, uh, actually, sorry. No, I won't torture you anymore. <laughs> <clears throat> Ivan Morrison, or that's his real name, Ivan Morrison, uh, another... Uh, he used to be another Catholic reactionary. Um, you kind of right. kind of got caught up in the '60s uh, rock and roll, um, rock and roll cult, if you will. Um, uh, he's quite the character. This, this isn't so you're not selling him very well. Well, <laughs> well, he's an Irishman and he's troubled. So how, how's that for a sales pitch? <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> but no, he's one of those. Uh, he's one of those uh, Irish characters that KV would probably write about if he had lived a hundred years ago. Right. He'd probably do a biography of him. Very, very, very interesting, complicated guy. Uh, but anyway, mm -hmm. uh, that song, uh, Brown Eyed Girl. How do we get on the subject of Brown Eyed Girl? In any event. <laughs> well, it's, it's because I didn't know it, I suspect. Um, what did they play for radio when you were growing up in Malta? Or did you not have Maltese radio stations? Uh, well, I didn't grow up in Malta, of course. Um, and we never, we never had the radio on. You grew up in England, in London, yeah. and they didn't have the. And then you, in the west, in the west country. Okay, and your parents didn't. Almost have, hard to come. Okay, yeah. do, did they have radio stations? I don't know where the west country is. Uh, what, the, what, well, the, uh, Tess of the Durbervilles. Think, think, um, think Thomas Hardy, Stonehenge. Oh, okay. Who are down there in the, in the valleys and that, 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 that? I mean, it's a bit remote, should we say? But it's not so remote. We did not have radio, but my parents didn't like the radio. Ah, well, I can't so say that was I never blame on. them. <laughs> yeah, so it was never on. Um, they, there wasn't quite so much choice. They then developed, of course, a classical music radio station, and that was most of what we listened to. Today Sorry. on Stonehenge Radio, we're going to play the. <laughs> greatest stony hits of all time well don't you you may well joke but i remember taking my my then boyfriend now husband to meet my family in the west country and he was fiddling around on the um on the radio trying to tune in and he suddenly started hearing all the west country accents and burst out laughing i never even <laughs> noticed them before <laughs> Do you know who uh, you, you would you would no. you would appreciate? You know you know who Mark Stein is. You've probably seen Mark Stein on GBTV. Uh, yeah, I, I recognize the name. Yes. Um, it was so he wrote a, a essay about this is 2023. So 2006. Mm. So what is that? Uh, 2005, somewhere there, 15, 18 years ago. Um, he, he wrote a, uh, an essay that you would very much appreciate. I'm going to uh, I'm going to get the link and I'm going to send it to you. 
Okay. Because um, he wrote he he wrote about how pop music had completely lowered the bar for musical uh, skill and mm-hmm. had dropped it it had dropped it so low that at the time um, that he was at the time that he wrote this <laughs> the 1990s come, came around that a character whose name was Snoop Dogg was oh, con- yes. yes Snoop Dogg was high culture high music culture mhm yeah i do know Snoop Dogg so, uh, but Stein's point was because he, uh, he he would probably call the music that I play dreadful music too. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's funny because I I didn't what I did read of Mark Stein I didn't like, but it sounds to me like we might get on on this one. Yeah, I, I had to uh, uh, find the uh, find the essay, but uh, I mean he, he's he's a funny guy, Stein. And one of the jokes that he wrote in the in the piece was that uh, music culture had gotten so bad that Schubert couldn't walk into a bar and crack a joke about what have you been doing, Schubert? Well, you know, still working on that symphony. Yeah. You know the unfinished symphony? Oh no, I, I get oh. this because I'm, I'm, I'm a nerd, a music nerd. I, I found it funny. So, so, well, Stein found it funny too. But his point was, no one else would find it funny in twenty in two thousand and five. They yeah. go like, who's Schubert and why is his symphony unfinished? Um, was yeah, his point? Um, oh, here we go. Um, well, I'm seeing. Sorry, I'm seeing all the comments in the chat room suddenly. Oh yeah. Yes. Uh, um, yes. I, grew, I grew up. I grew up listening to the harpsichord. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah. harpsichord is uh, it's a combination of a harp and a piano, right? Well, it was it. It was before the piano. Um, the piano um, has lots of little hammers. Because the har- harpsichord plucks. Yes, so the sound is quite different. Yes. It's quite sort of it's quite tinny, and in fact, you couldn't get the the emotional range. Um, that's where when the piano came out. That's where you started to have these big concertos and and things like that because you, you suddenly could. You had more of a dynamic range and things. Now yeah. uh, I I heard there was a discussion earlier about sushi. Yes, don't like raw fish. Okay, so well, have you ever had actual raw fish? Yes. Okay. Didn't like it. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe you had bad raw fish because I don't like most of it either. You, you had some that you liked then, did you? There, there are some. Uh, for example, albacore tuna. I wouldn't even um, want you to... I, <laughs> if you showed me a piece of albacore tuna, I wouldn't even want you to cook it. It's so good. Uh, really? Oh, yes. Albacore is white, flaky before you cook it, and it has no fish taste to it. It just it almost has this, uh, almost has a sweetness to it. There, uh, the, there is also the um, ahi tuna, which is another mm-hmm. a very warm water tuna fish that um, uh, you don't need to cook it. Most places will take ahi tuna and they'll just, <laughs> we'll get a griddle hot, throw some sesame oil down. They'll take the, the ahi tuna filet and they'll go, literally. Okay, this is literally how it happens. You ready? Okay, okay here we go. Pssst. Flip. Pssst. Cut and serve. Five seconds. Right. Five seconds. Yeah, okay. you just want to you just want to make it look like you cooked some of the uh, the outside of it. Um, well, it sort of is cooking, then, isn't it? Kind of. Sort of. But Maggie and I eat uh, raw oysters like they're going out of style when they're available. Delicious. 
<laughs> Listen, Maggie, we're going to have to do a cookery show sometime, okay? You should! Time. Well, don't you, you may well joke, but I remember taking my, my then boyfriend, now husband, to meet my family in the West Country, and he was fiddling around on the... Um, on the radio trying to tune in and he suddenly started hearing all the West Country accents and burst out laughing. I never even <laughs> noticed them before. Do you know who uh, you, you would you would, no. appre- you would appreciate you know, you know who Mark Stein is. You've probably seen Mark Stein on GBTV. Uh, yeah, I, I recognize the name, yes. Um, it was so he wrote a, a essay about this is 2023, so 2006. Mm. So what is that? Uh, 2005, somewhere there, 15, 18 years ago. Um, mm. he, he wrote a uh, an essay that you would very much appreciate. I'm going to uh, I'm going to get the link and I'm going to send it to you. Uh, okay. Because um, he wrote he he wrote about how. Pop music had completely lowered the bar for musical uh, skill, and mm-hmm. had dropped it. It had dropped it so low that at the time um, that, that he was at the time that he wrote this, <laughs> the 1990s come, came around that a character whose name was Snoop Dogg was. Oh, given, yes. yes, Snoop Dogg was high culture, high music culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do know Snoop Dogg. So, uh, but Stein's point was because he, uh, he he would probably call the music that I play dreadful music too. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's funny because I I didn't what I did read of Mark Stein I didn't like, but it sounds to me like we might get on on this one. Yeah, I, I had to uh, uh, find the uh, find the essay, but uh, I mean he, he's he's a funny guy, Stein. And one of the jokes that he wrote in the in the piece was that uh, music culture had gotten so bad that Schubert couldn't walk into a bar and crack a joke about what have you been doing, Schubert? Well, you know, still working on that symphony. Yeah. You know the unfinished symphony. Oh no, I, I get uh, this because okay. I'm, I'm, I'm a nerd, a music nerd. I, I found it funny. So, so, well, Stein found it funny too. But his point was, no one else would find it funny in twenty in two thousand and five. They yeah. go like, who's Schubert and why is his symphony unfinished? Um, was yeah, his point? Um, oh, here we go. Um, well, I'm seeing. Sorry, I'm seeing all the comments in the chat room suddenly. Oh yeah. Yes. Uh, um, I, grew, I grew up. I grew up listening to the harpsichord. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah. harpsichord is uh, well, it's a combination of a harp and a piano, right? Well, it was it. It was before the piano. Um, the piano um, has lots of little hammers. Because the har- harpsichord plucks. Yes, so the sound is quite different. Yes. It's quite sort of it's quite tinny, and in fact, you couldn't get the the emotional range. Um, that's where when the piano came out. That's where you started to have these big concertos and and things like that because you, you suddenly could. You had more of a dynamic range and things. Now yeah. uh, I I heard there was a discussion earlier about sushi. Yes, don't like raw fish. Okay, so well, have you ever had actual raw fish? Yes. Okay. Didn't like it. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe you had bad raw fish because I don't like most of it either. You, you had some that you liked, then, did you? There, there are some. Uh, for example, albacore tuna. 
I wouldn't even um, want you to, I, if you showed me a piece of albacore tuna, I wouldn't even want you to cook it. It's so good. Uh, really? Oh, yes. Albacore is white, flaky before you cook it, and it has no fish taste to it. It just it almost has this, uh, almost has a sweetness to it. There, uh, the, there is also the um, ahi tuna, which is another mm-hmm. a very warm water tuna fish that um, uh, you don't need to cook it. Most places will take ahi tuna and they'll just, <laughs> we'll get a griddle hot, throw some sesame oil down. They'll take the, the ahi tuna filet and they'll go, literally. Okay, this is literally how it happens. You ready? Okay, okay here we go. Psss, flip. Psss, cut and serve. Five seconds. Right. Five seconds. Yeah, okay. you just want to you just want to make it look like you cook some of the uh, the outside of it. Um, well, it sort of is cooking, then, isn't it? Kind of. Sort of. But Maggie and I eat uh, uh, raw oysters like they're going out of style when they're available. Delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Maggie, we're going to have to do a cookery show sometime. Okay. You should. You're going to have to join me. Come on. I'll do it. We yeah. did a cookery show this weekend. We had wing. We had. Uh, do, 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 do you. I don't know what you would call them. Chicken drumettes? Drumsticks? Drumsticks. Well, not, no, not the, not the large drumstick. The, the, the small one. These are from small chickens. Um, There's an entire industry nuggets? here in the United States. No, no, the bones are in. Uh, buffalo wings. Oh, wings. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. So there's an entire industry here in the United States for buffalo wings. Okay. And uh, we uh, we have uh, several recipes that we use and uh, or, or, and styles with the different sauces. So there it is. There it is in the chat room. That's what we call wing fest. Okay. <laughs> right. So, there's not a lot of um. There's there's uh, some controversy here about raw oysters. Well, that's from uh, people that are landlocked, uh, landlocked people that don't know what good Cajun, what good seafood is. So, I wouldn't I would expect. Never eat, I would, I would never eat raw oysters. I would, I'm hepatitis. I would expect someone that's landlocked and has no access to actual real seafood would not have an appreciation of raw oysters. Did you hear that, Louise? <laughs> oh, no, Louise did have the I am unapologetic when it comes to apologizing for all things Louisiana and Cajun. Um, uh, and raw oysters is a big part of that. Although we love cooked oysters, raw oysters? too. Oh, yes. Mm. No, there's no other way to have them on the half shell. Uh, you must have them on the half shell. But then, hepatitis, I mean... You know, no, no. The only the only disease that you'll get because they're in okay, a raw oyster, Louisiana or Texas raw oyster, is has been marinating and it's been brining its entire life. The oldest food preservation method in the world is brining. And salt packing, whatever you wish to call it. So a raw oyster has been sitting there its entire life, sucking in pure salt water and then belching out or breathing out or or whatever it does. So it's sitting there, it's marinating the salt water. It, it's completely harmless. There's only there's only one critter that can get into uh, that can get into raw oysters. Uh, it's very well known, and if you don't have a weak immune system, even that won't make you sick. Uh, Volnif, uh, I forget the name of it. In any event, you only want to have raw oysters. It's supposed to be months that end in R. So September, right. October, November, and December are raw oyster months. 
that's how you work it out, is it? Well, no, because you'll get them year-round now, but it used to be only months that end in R. But okay. a- after the advent of refrigeration, so they could remove the oysters from the oyster beds uh, during uh, the summer months when it's warmer, and they can immediately chill them down and transport them, the, mo- uh, the months that end in R, uh, that thing went away. Kind of. Right. Kind of. Kind of. Kind of. Okay. Right. Well, my children were upset. They were watching Alice in Wonderland, the idea, the other day, and there was that that's, that bit where the oysters all get eaten. So, <laughs> they, weren't, it, they weren't happy. And uh, in Alice in Wonderland, the oysters get eaten? Yes. The walrus and the carpenter. Ah. Well, you know, uh, I've never seen a non-modern rendition of Alice in Wonderland, so... <laughs> and I never well, read this- Lewis Carroll. Well, this was the Disney version. Yes, as I said, I've never seen a non-modern, <laughs> modernized version. Actually, I suppose it was the 1950s that was made, wasn't it? So, so you are uh, uh, quite a famous uh, author today with Joseph Pierce. That's high praise. I'm so pleased. I'm really pleased because uh, well, I like jo- Joseph. You know. Yeah, uh, his piece is "Endless War and the Quest for Peace," and uh, I didn't even know you wrote this book. Is this a is this a Willie Doyle book? No, no, I wrote this years ago. And the funny thing is, um, you know, you can never quite tell what book is going to be popular and what isn't. I thought it would be reasonably popular because it was about the First World War and it, it was published around the time of the uh, the anniversary. The, the um, 19, It was 2014 it was mm-hmm. written. Um, but it's been my least popular book. And in fact, it was one of my favourites to write. It's set in Malta and England during the First World War. So it gives a slightly different insight into the war because most people don't know what was happening in Malta during the First World War. They know what happened during the Second World War, obviously, because of the siege and all of that. But um, I wanted to talk a little bit about that and um, and about Gallipoli as opposed to the Western Front. Uh, and it just it slightly sank without trace. But I'm, I'm glad that Joseph Pierce has picked it up. So what was happening in Malta? It was a, a, a storage depot island because it is strategically placed. It was a hospital. Ah, that yes, makes sense. It was, it, was, it was the nurse of the Mediterranean. Ah. Um, and the idea was that all the, the casualties from Gallipoli and the um, Allenby campaigns would go to Malta. But in fact, in the end, uh, it didn't get used as much as they expected because it was so dangerous getting the hospital ships um, over to Malta, they were they came under attack. Even though they were um, they were hospital ships, they still came under attack. So um, the the probably the most famous nurse out there, though I don't mention her in my book, was Vera Britton, the author of Testament of Youth. She was sent to Malta during the First World War. Yeah, I've heard the name. Um, yes. So so that was what I was writing about. But I was also just writing about you know all the you know it's it's it starts in 1908. It's about Edwardian. Edwardian Malta and then you see and it, it ends during the Second World War and a lot of it's about memory and it's set in and around the Arab hospital I worked in when I was in Jerusalem so yeah it's a special book for me have you seen uh, have you ever seen the film 1917 no do you know something in recent years I've become incapable of watching anything about the First World War I just find it so upsetting oh well uh, just, you wouldn't just, want to watch 1917 then. No, I, I suspect it's I, all just, too real. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's part of it. Is that with with special effects and CGI now we can, yeah, we can well, bring the it horrors, to life. The horrors, the horrors 
of trench warfare oh, uh, and, and and the aftermath uh, uh, even of some of the trenches that were uh, that, that were abandoned is what the the film is about it 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 it, it, it has a signature accomplishment which is uh, I'm not sure how they did it because it's very long it's epic length it's like three hours long um, and they shot it on it looks like if you watch it there are two cuts. Mm-hmm. So it, it's 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 a film that begins with an opening shot, and you follow those characters from that opening shot until the end of the film on what appears to be one canister of film with no cutaways for different camera angles. Wow, it, it's um, it's absolutely incredible. Um, maybe turn the sound off and don't listen to it and watch. <laughs> watch it it's absolutely and, and and the reality that they were able to get into that with the uh, with the sets that they made what the trench warfare looked like and the fact that they just don't cut away uh, they actually do but they make it look like uh, they, they don't cut away it's one single shot there's one cutaway in the, in the whole film when they go into a building and you see them go in and then all of a sudden you're in the staircase. Uh, right. So there's like one and then you cut cut uh, back uh, out of that. So two cuts. It, it's, it, won, it won every award it could have won from the Academy the year it was up. And it should have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it didn't pull any punches. I mean, the guy that made it said, I wanted to show what actual real warfare, the horror of what it looks like, so we don't ever yeah. do it again. Yeah. Uh, no, I think it's absolutely correct. Um, I think that, well, if you look at some of the literature that came out at the time, that is what they were trying to do, All Quiet on the Western Front and the, uh, the war poems. They were trying to show just how brutal it was. But sometimes, dare I say it as a wordsmith, words fail. Um, and it's, just, it's those images that really stick with people. Uh, yes, and the images were the images were awful. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, Peter Jackson also made a documentary. Yes, I heard all about that. Was colorizing actual footage. He yes, he found um, canisters. He found old uh, old reels of film, and then he basically took letters that were written by uh, to and from letters written by I forget the guy who was writing to someone in England, and she or he was writing back to him, and mm. they um, kind of put actors. In, that's the only where the actors were just to re, uh, to uh, dramatize the writing of the letters. Um, but yes, there. Was all uh, he found all this footage and put it all together. I thought it was actually too long and kind of boring, but yeah. I like the idea. Right, um, boring. Gosh, well, I, did, I should say I haven't seen it, so I can't. I can't comment. But it's not brutal. Uh, it's 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 an, it, it's a documentary. It's not brutal. It's not, it's not like 1917. It's trying to show the subhuman side. I think it was looking it at something slightly different. Um, I tell you what, if you want to read something that really brings home just the tragedy of it, not so much the horror, just the tragedy, it's called uh, Letters to a Lost Generation. Okay. And it's Vera Britton and th- her, Vera Britton, her brother her fiancé and a couple of her friends, all of whom died during the course of the war. Um, and it is absolutely devastating. It, you know, you, you, you read it in tears. Um, it, 
it's it's incredible incre- just it, just the it's just their words there's no editing it's just what they said from the trenches well the people that are agitating for uh, world war 3 out there probably should read this book and watch 1917 because uh. uh, uh, war is not the picnic that uh, these uh, the, the, the these demon enhanced people try to make it out to be it's all valor and glory and honor no dude it's War, <laughs> Sherman said it best, war is hell, and he would know. Yeah, uh, and I, th- I suppose the fact is, it is, you know, we have a generation now who have not experienced war, and the generation that went through the Second World War, well, First World War, long gone, um, but who went through the Second World War are, you know, falling out of living memory. Yes. And that's why perhaps we do need to keep these stories alive. We just need to remind people of what it does to a country, what it does to a people okay, this, to have to go through this. Uh, 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 Final point, then I'll let you go, because mm. this is something I think you could talk about, uh, mm. uh, or I think we could talk about. There's a priest, gosh, where I started Crisis Magazine. He has come to the conclusion that since uh, this pampered generation, the, the one that are young adults now, because they have never experienced anything that remotely could, could be called suffering, they can't understand the suffering of the passion. They can't relate to it because they've they've they've, they've, they've known no suffering. They've never missed a meal. They've lived pampered, digitized existences. Uh, if they want to work, they can. If they don't want to work, they 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 have not had to go through the hardships that that generation that you mentioned from World War II did, um, and even the the generations that came after that. And I, who was the priest? It might have been Anthony Solon that wrote this. Actually, uh, saying that the, they can't relate to the passion. So you can only give them the the more um, the less bloody, more sanguine parts of the gospel narrative because they can't understand <laughs> fasting and stuff like that to them. It's why it doesn't make any sense because they are unfamiliar with pain, other than the That's emotional pain that they claim that they feel now, which we have a soundbite and we'll probably do a whole hour on that on the show today. All oh, right. Okay. Good luck with it's that. A, oh, yeah. It's a fertile subject because it's, it, oh, it's, yeah. it's what's actually happening. So, yeah. uh, having said that, uh, I sent you the uh, I sent you the summary of the the summons. Uh, yes, I shall get listening and. I'm going to nag you continue. like you nag me to record it. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to nag you for edits like you nag me. Yeah, this is your turn. All right, let's get it done. Now. A Christmas okay. a Christmas release. It must happen. Okay, we'll do it. All right. All right, we'll see you tomorrow. God bless. Indeed. Um, it is 38 minutes past the hour. It's been my absolute pleasure to bring you the early show all the way from sunny England. Don't forget to write to me at fiorella at crusadechannel.com and the chat room is open for your commentary at crusadechannel.com forward slash chat. I will leave you now with the King Dude, Mike Church himself. You're listening to the Crusade Channel, talk show radio the way it should be. Yeah.